From the heart of the Oregon wine country, you're listening to Season 6 of the Wine Crush Podcast. Stories uncorked for wine enthusiasts around the world. Featuring winemakers from the Willamette Valley and beyond. From origin stories to terroir, here's your host, Heidi Moore. Hey, everybody. It is time for Wine Crush Podcast. It is nearing the end of our sixth season, which is crazy. And we are in episode 11, and we have two fine gentlemen in here with us today. We have Chris from Liska. Yes? Is that right? That's right. Okay. Pronounced it right. And then um, Colin from Mendivia, which these are like two names that are going to give me torture today, but we're going to do it. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. So we are starting with Chris, with Liska and... We met several months ago. Mm -hmm. I think we tried to go to a bar to meet and talk, and it was closed. And we tried to go to another one, and it was closed. A couple unsuccessful bars. Yeah, so we ended up at my office and chit-chatted for a while. But gosh, it's been been a while. There's been a lot in between there. Yeah. Yeah, a whole lot of summer. Yeah. whole lot of summer and the end of the spring and uh, winemaking and racking and bottling and all the good stuff that comes with it. So... Welcome. Finally, welcome. I'm so Thank happy you. you're here. So let's hear a little bit more about Liska because I know it's you and your partner. She's not here today, which is sad, but that's okay. We'll make the best of it with yeah, just you. I'll so, try. Yeah. And you brought us some really nice wine. So let's dive right into it and hear all about kind of like your background and what kind of got you interested in wine, where you started, how you ended up here, because, you know, that's always a question of mine because most <laughs> people don't start here. Sure. They just end up. So, okay. Floor is yours. So to start with the brand and how we started this, my partner and I moved up here in 2018. I did a harvest at Chehalem Winery. She did a harvest down in Southern Oregon. My partner is Dragomir Zeleva. I would have destroyed that name. (laughs) Just just saying that right off the top. Draga is what we call her for short. She did a harvest down in Southern Oregon. I did harvest up here. We decided to settle down in the Willamette Valley and not have jobs for a little bit. (laughs) So we... Settled down here, looked for jobs, finally found them. I ended up at Kristen Vineyards and started there in 2019, did a harvest there. And then the following year, her and I started talking about maybe doing our own thing and starting our own label. We both love Riesling, basically. <laughs> like we, There's not a lot not to love about Riesling. Uh, that's how I feel. Yeah. Yes. It's just got everything. And uh, we both did a harvest in the Mosul in Germany. So really fell in love with the grape there and fell in love with the style of wine that they were making from it and thought, you know, we'd try our hand at doing that here with Riesling Grapes in Oregon. So that was the original impetus for creating this brand. We wanted to make great like German GG style Riesling. What Um, is GG? It stands for Grosse Gewex and it's basically like Grand Cru for Germany. Oh, okay. Learned something new. So we started with that plan and asked Kristen if we could make it there. And they said yes, which was great. (laughs) Made the whole thing possible from the beginning. And then uh, started looking for Riesling, found a bit of Riesling, and then found a bit of Gamay, and then found a bit of Gewürztraminer, and then found a bit of Gruner Veltliner, and then some Syrah. And so it just kind of like turned into like a fully fledged label and brand almost on its own in a way. 
So was that the original plan was to have that many different varietals? Absolutely not. Right no. out of the gate. <laughs> no. No. And I had a lot of um a lot of stress that first twenty twenty one harvest, just like being like, wow, we're making a lot of wine and a lot of different SKUs and we don't even know what our our winery is called yet. Like we don't even know what we're gonna call this. We don't have a label. We just have wine. So we made the wine and then put the rest together. So where did Liska come from? And so what does it mean? It's the name of our dog. Okay. We tried out a bunch of different names and they all just kind of felt forced and didn't really feel true to us. And the thing that, not the one thing that unites us, we also have a two-year-old daughter now. But <laughs> uh, at the Se- time, several things that unite you, <laughs> children, dogs, and wine. Yeah. We love our dog and it's something that unites the two of us and it felt like a unique name and it's a Bulgarian name. It's also relating to Draga and her background, her heritage. And in Bulgarian, it means female fox. So our dog is like a German shepherd husky mix. And so she's got this kind of like big bushy tail and kind of fox-like coloring. And so that's why we named her that. That all makes sense. Yeah. That makes so much sense. So let's Let's rewind just a little bit before we get too much further into the wine, because there's definitely much more to talk about, obviously, with it. Um, So let's talk about Draga and and her her upbringing, because she grew up in Bulgaria, like you just said. You guys were just there for the summer, weren't you? We were. And how was that? It was nice. Yeah. We basically just hung out on the Black Sea, just hung out on the beach for two weeks. And our daughter loved it and drank a lot of a lot of beer <laughs> and ate a lot of uh, um, French fries with feta cheese on them. And yeah, it was Is nice. that a thing? Oh, is yeah. It? It's delicious. Wow. I'm going to have to talk to my daughter about that. She is a French fry and feta cheese-aholic, but I don't think she's ever <laughs> even thought about putting them together. So I thought ours would like it more than she mind. did. Our daughter just picked around all the cheese and just went straight for the fries. But Interesting. Yeah. So did she grow up with wine then in her, like, in her life? Is Bulgaria, is it big in wine? I mean, is it yeah. part of the tradition in the daily life like it is in Italy or France? Yeah, very much so. I mean, it feels like a lot of Southern Europe countries in that sense. And it is Southern but Eastern Europe. It used to be one of the largest wine producing countries in the world when it was behind the Iron Curtain. It provided most of the wine to the Soviet Union and the other Eastern Bloc states. I think at one point it was the fourth largest producing country in the world. And then communism collapsed at the end of the 80s. So with that, you know, everybody lost their jobs, the whole economy dried up and all that demand for wine from the Soviet Union dried up as well. You know, the industry of winemaking sort of collapsed after that. And the last 30 years or 40 years has been putting it back together. So now there's a lot more new producers. There's a lot more even like foreign producers coming in and starting wineries there. On top of that, there is a tradition of winemaking that has been going on since, I mean, the Thracians would be the original people that made wine there. And that was well before the Romans. So history uh, is crazy. Long time. Yeah. That's a, I mean, you start adding up years and that's just, it just seems unreal. Yeah. Just how far and long ago that was. So when you're looking at varietals and stuff out of over there, just out of curiosity, I mean, is it stuff that we've heard of or is it? Probably not as much. I mean, they do grow a lot of international varietals because that's what they can sell outside of Bulgaria. So there's a good amount of Cab Sauv and Cab Franc. 
Merlot, Syrah, you know, a lot of big reds like that. But they also have like Mavrud and Melnik and Rubin and a, a few others that I can't remember. Huh. But yeah, everybody seems to grow grapes. Everybody has grapes. You drive around the countryside and everybody has a small vineyard in their backyard. And everybody picks their grapes and makes wine out of it. And they've got their barrel, their one barrel or whatever that's in their basement that they make wine in every year and and then drain it off throughout the year and drink the wine. And yeah, it's a culture of winemaking for sure. And Draga, cool. Draga grew up doing that, you know, picking grapes with her grandparents and making wine. And so she has that that cultural background of it as well. So what brought her to the U.S. then? Was U.S. her first stop or did she try some other locations as far as doing harvest and things that were interesting? She came here as a student, basically. Went to college here and then ended up staying and continuing to go to college here. She was living in Alaska for a few years and then and going to college up there and then transferred to UC Davis to do the viticulture enology program there. And uh, that's where we met. I went there for my master's for viticulture enology, and we had all our same classes together and went on the same winemaking trips together and and then eventually got together. There, there you go. That's like, you know, like movie, like storyline 101. Yes. <laughs> yes. The whole, the whole thing just lines up perfectly. Yeah. Okay. So now we got her story. We got your guys's together story. Now, what's your story? My story is, you know, I don't come from a winemaking background, really. Uh, I come from California. That's as much of a winemaking background that I come from. That's so, very broad. Yeah. Yes, that's very broad. <laughs> yeah. I was surrounded by wine, but not really a culture of wine. You know, when I was like 19 or 20, I got really into home brewing and decided I wanted to go to school for that. And so I took all the prereqs, applied to Oregon State, got in. Went to Oregon State, started taking the food science classes that are part of that, and uh, I also did a microbiology major as well, and so I was taking microbiology classes too. You know, as part of this major, as part of a fermentation science major, you also have to take winemaking classes. So they give you options when you graduate. If you can't find a job in brewing, you can go to winemaking or vice versa. I took the winemaking classes, and I found that it had everything that I liked about brewing. I liked, you know, the science of it. I liked making this tangible product. I liked fermentation. I liked the microbiology side. But it didn't have all the things that I didn't like about brewing. It didn't have the repetitive processes, the making the same recipe over and over again, the doing the same thing year round. It has seasonality to it and the challenges that come along with that as well. That seemed like it would kind of keep me more interested in the long term and still offer all the things that I liked. So I switched gears, stopped looking at brewery internships and started looking at winery internships and then uh, did a harvest in Washington and then a harvest in New Zealand after that and applied to grad schools along the way because I figured I need to learn a little bit more about winemaking than just the two classes that I took at OSU. Thankfully got into UC Davis and then did a master's there. Since then, Drog and I traveled around and did harvest in Germany, did harvest in Australia, and then uh, eventually figured that Oregon was a good place for us to kind of settle down and make the kind of wines that we wanted to make and be in the sort of culture that we wanted to be in. 
I was just going to ask you if you had actually been to Germany to kind of like actually immerse yourself in like the style of wine that you were wanting to make with the Riesling and stuff with the Mosul area, Mm. but you just answered that question. So, (laughs) So I've always wanted to go. I don't know anything about it other than I really like Germany. They got great food. Yeah. They got great beer yeah. and they have really great bread and pastries and things like that. So tell me a little bit more about like what that style is, that Mosul Riesling style. I mean, how does it differentiate with what we see a lot over here in the Oregon making of Rieslings? So I, I think the approach of it and what they're trying to achieve is very different. You know, from the get-go, when we got there, we tasted a bunch of Riesling. We went around to different wineries in the town that we were in, which is Vinnegan, which is in the lower Mosul, kind of close to Koblenz and the Rhine River where it meets the Mosul. Tasted a bunch of places there, tasted a bunch of the wines at the winery that we were working at, which is Heyman Levenstein. And there were wines that we really liked that they were like, oh no, this one isn't good. You know, it's too fruity. Like it's too expressive at this point. What they're really looking for from the get-go is Wines that are austere, really, that are- What does uh, that mean? Austere is like really closed off, really hard to pick apart, I think. Not super expressive, not very fruity, more salty, more savory. That's the best I can describe it. Okay. But, well, yeah. um, nice work. <laughs> thank <Yes>. you. <laughs> I, I, I didn't know, so it all sounds really good and smart to me. Yes. Whereas I think a lot of the, especially reasoning in general, I think people try to push the terpenes and- all those fruity floral flavors out front here in the United States or in the new world in general, and really have that be the expression of the wine. Whereas in Germany, they wanted to make wines that, you know, aren't all that great when they're first released, you know, that are really closed off, that are really austere. And then with time and bottle, as they age, they just get more and more beautiful and they age like incredibly. I mean, I had wines from German Rieslings from the 70s and 60s there that were still beautiful. Like, And that kind of goes back. You hear a lot of times that white wines can't age. Yeah. And obviously that is not the case if you're drinking wines from the 60s yeah. and 70s that taste amazing at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Is it a wine style and a way of making it that is different over there that is meant for more for an aging and that's why they're austere? I like that word now. <laughs> Yes, closed <laughs> off. Um, whereas like here we want something that's a little bit more drinkable earlier and quicker. Yeah. And I know a lot of the reds will age really nicely and I know some whites will age really nicely. But is that just a choice as far as like how you want it to age and when you want it drank? I think it's a winemaking choice. Yeah. I mean, every winemaker has a choice of what they want to do to have that wine either be something that's going to age really well or something that's going to drink well young. And it's hard to have it both ways, you know. There is like a gray zone there in the middle, but a lot of the time if a wine is going to age really well, then it it doesn't taste all that great when it's young. At least the wineries that we worked at, they made a choice where they wanted those wines to really age well. And a lot of their consumers understand that when they're purchasing those wines, that maybe they're really closed off and austere upon release. But they're going to hold on to those wines for a decade or so, and then they're going to be much better at that point. So they're definitely making that choice there. (laughs) And then there's also the grapes themselves too. So in Germany, you can just get incredible acid out of 
those Rieslings and really, really low pHs. That low pH, those high acids help those white wines age really well. So you can make those same, you can make that same choice with Chardonnay as well. You know, if you are picking Chardonnay and finishing it, I don't want to get too technical, but, <laughs> you know, a below with pH of 3.2, you know, it's, it's probably going to hang out in bottle for a long time and age really, really gracefully, but it might not be all that great upon release. Hmm. It's interesting. I, I mean, I just don't ask those questions. I just open the bottle and hope it tastes good yeah. most of the time. And most of the time it does. But I, you know, you do hear that white wines just aren't meant to age. And I just, I, as I learn more and more, I think it's BS. So, I mean, <laughs> yeah. and probably for some it is. They're meant to be drank quickly and whatever, but sure. it is possible for them to age long and well and beautifully. So, yeah. okay, let's shift to the U.S. One, let's talk about these labels because okay. Draga makes these, doesn't she? Doesn't she, she draw does, these? Yeah. yeah, these are really beautiful. Thank you. So is I'll there... say thank you for her. Yes, yes. <laughs> Too bad she's not here to say thank you herself. I got her name down now, at least the first name. Yeah. So is there meaning and expression behind these labels? I mean, is there a reason for it or are they just beautiful because that's how she's made them? Both. So they're they're paired to the wine itself. So you see, this is the Gewürztraminer that you're looking at. It has a bunch of flowers on it. It's a very floral wine. So she wanted to have imagery that has all these... Pacific Northwest flowers on them. Yeah, I see the bleeding heart on here, and yeah. there's got to be a trillium on here. Yep, right there on the top left. Yeah. Like true Oregon <laughs> flowers, yes. So she tried to put all those Pacific Northwest or a lot of the Pacific Northwest flowers into one composition. And same thing for the Syrah. You know, the Syrah has a bunch of conifers on it. It's kind of a, a piney Syrah in a way. And so I'm we gonna have to, to believe you because <laughs> okay, <laughs> I, but I also it's, don't have the it's palate piney, of the nose. Briny, it's it's got a bit of a a green character to it. Conifers are a big part of Northwest, and there's a lot of pine trees everywhere. So we picked pines for that imagery there, and she did a a linoleum relief print is what it is. Hmm. So she takes a piece of linoleum and kind of sketches out a rough design of where everything's going to lay, but she doesn't really draw on it. You know, like it's basically a few pencil marks like, oh, that's going to go here. That's going to go here. And then she starts carving into it and carves out a design. And once the design is all carved out, she rolls ink on the top of it and then makes a print from that carving. So it's basically making a big stamp and then stamping an image. And then That's she scans the image and then puts it. It's a lot of work. That's so cool, though. I there's it takes I, many hours to make each one. I can only imagine because I've I've talked to some that cut out paper and some that draw that. Oh, yeah, sure. yeah, and it's just it's I love seeing the artistry. It's not just what's in the bottle, but you're seeing so much artistry with the labels themselves and yeah. expression and stuff. It just I think it's just absolutely amazing. Well, let me say with the Gerberts Tomato because we opened that first. Mm -hmm. That is a lovely wine. Thank you. Yes. It seems like not all, but they're not as fruity as mm -hmm. maybe that is. And that was really nice. Thank you. Yes. I might hoard the rest of that bottle. Like we, I love I love good white wine. So <laughs> Oh, do you want some more? I see. You can't have any more. Yeah, Gewürztraminer is one the of those. Last is mine. <laughs> it's one of those grapes that is um it's so uniquely expressive. 
you kind of know it as soon as you put your nose in the glass that it's gewürztraminer, or at least you have a idea that it's gewürztraminer. So we wanted to capture that and retain as much of that as possible, the opposite of austerity. Um. <laughs> You're using a lot of big words. And, and I thought I was fairly well educated, but I don't even know what that one means now either. Austere. It's oh, the okay, opposite okay, of austere. okay, okay. So that was just a long version of what yes. you've just been saying earlier. Okay, there we go. Um, that makes me sound like a real dumb dumb, but that's a, that's okay. Your vocabulary lesson for today is so you wanted that to really be out front, but one through line with all of our wines is having acid be the driving force of the wine. We don't want any of our wines to be flabby by any means, and I sort of feel like having natural acidity as a main component of the wine can also drive and frame flavors in a way that. If the wine is too flat, if it doesn't have enough of that, I feel like those flavors just kind of disappear and, or don't pop quite as much. As is that they what would. you mean by flabby? Yeah. Flabby okay. is like low acid. Okay. Yeah. I hear that and I just think it's chubby. Yeah. So it's just maybe which is, you know. <laughs> fat, you know. Fat, could be fat, fat, flabby, yeah. not a lot of flavor. Okay. Got it. So we try to keep a, a good amount of acid in there as well and try to keep the alcohol low, but have that kind of drive the flavors forward. Got it. Nice. And then you brought a Syrah too, mm -hmm. which is really nice too. Like Syrahs can be super jammy. They can be really big, really rich. This is really nicely fruit floored with not flabby. Yeah, not has, flabby. Nope. It has a really nice acid on it too. Yeah. So yeah, this is great. What else? Now, what else are you making? Because that's important. So besides these, besides the Syrah and the Gewürztraminer, we also for 2021 made a Gruner Veltliner, a Riesling, of course. You got to get that one in. That's why you came yeah, here. That was supposed to be the only one. And then uh, a Gamay as well. So what's your favorite? I don't know. <laughs> that is not the right answer. <laughs> I don't know. It, it really changes day to day. You know, a lot of the time it's the Gruner Veltliner. I, I, why? You don't uh, see a lot of Gruner out, out and about yeah. here. So it's, it's interesting when people have, I mean, you kind of have like a trifecta of whites. You have your Gewürztraminer, yeah. which is hard to say. And a Gruner Veltliner, which is hard to say. They're all mouthfuls. And then you have a Riesling. So mm -hmm. you've kind of done like the trifecta of kind of like what feels like more like Alps type wines or yeah. German type wines. And I don't know if that's correct or not, but mm. they sound like they should all be from Switzerland and Germany and Austria somewhere over there. Yeah, those are kind of the wines we like to drink most of the mm -hmm. time. I, I mean, I like to drink Chardonnay as well, but I work full time at Christum and we make plenty of Chardonnay there. Mm -hmm. And I really like the way that we make it. So sort of felt like didn't make sense to make another Chardonnay because I would just make it in the same way. Sure. And what's the point in that? Whereas these other varieties, I wasn't making them at Christum and I like to drink them. And Drag and I felt like we could make them in a way that maybe some other people weren't and have something to contribute to the conversation about those varieties. Yeah, I like it. So why is the Gewürztraminer your, no, you said Gruner. Gruner. Why is the Gruner your favorite? Because that's not what you came here to make. No, yeah. It, and it's one that we were stoked to get. But yeah, I think it's my favorite because it's it's just really clean. It's got a very subtle like white pepper flavor to it. Really limey, almost like a margarita kind of limey. And you know, at the end of the day, when it comes to like having a glass of wine with food, it's like it just pairs perfectly with a lot of different stuff. So it's for me, it's like the most casual drinking, easy to enjoy, but subtly complex wine that we make. Sounds like a great summer wine. Yeah. As definitely. well. 
yeah. like good warm weather wine. So when you're pairing, what's the favorite pairing with your Gruner? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Everybody says tacos. Don't say tacos. Yeah, probably not tacos. Yeah, I'm not sure. It's a, it is a high acid, um, really light bodied wine. So it goes well with fish, of course, but fish and pasta and anything that, or Thai food for sure. Ooh, that sounds really good. Are they open for dinner? Might need Thai, <laughs> might need some Thai country now that you've mentioned that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. We don't do a lot of pairings. We just like eat food and drink wine. We just eat food and drink wine. Yeah. So I don't really think about it that I much. I think that's my favorite way to do it. I yeah. mean, I just don't, I think, you know, when you overthink it, you make it too complicated and then yeah. it's maybe not quite as fun as if you just choose whatever it is that sounds good to eat. And then hopefully whatever you open tastes good with it. And sometimes it doesn't. And so yeah. you, you cork that one, throw it off to the side <laughs> we'll and drink you, that tomorrow. Yeah. And you open another one. So, and there's, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, we've done that several times at our house and my flavor is completely different than my husband's palate. And a lot of times I'm drinking a white wine and he's drinking some sort of red and we're pairing it with the same exact thing and we're both happy as, as can be. So I just, I think that's the thing with wine is that there's so many rules and there's been so many rules put mm -hmm. into place and a lot of them are unnecessary. Yeah. No, you just kind of do whatever you want to do. <laughs> you know, yeah. That's, it's here for enjoyment. So uh, we try to enjoy it. Well, awesome. Well, unfortunately we're at the end of your half hour, so <laughs> we need to figure out where we actually come find this wine and we can buy it. And yeah. um, if there's, I don't know if you do tastings and reservations because you don't have a tasting room necessarily quite no, yet. Not yet. Um, so tell us where we can find you and how we can support you. So first off, you can find us at our website, liskawine.com. All our wines are available through there, or at least everyone but the Gruner that I talked about. <laughs> that you talked up so the, much. Yeah, yes. the Gruner is sold out. Way, but way to go. Yeah, the rest of them are still available on there. And we have a distributor in Oregon, uh, Lone Wolf Distributing, and they distribute our wines to bunch of wine shops and restaurants. And so I'd say most wine shops in Portland, you could probably find at least one of our SKUs at, thanks to Lone Wolf. And then outside of Portland, you can find us in Bend at a few places, Arome Wine Bar out there, and Market of Choice. We're in Market of Choice in Bend as well as Corvallis and Corazon. Wine bar in Corvallis as oh, well. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's Nick. Yeah, Nick. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's been, he's been, he's a friend of mine from him and I worked on the bottling line at A to Z like ten years ago, and now he has a wine bar, and so we've done some stuff with him, and he carries our wines too. And yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah, yeah. It's a small world, and everybody intersects. It seems somewhere in the wine world. Yes, especially so, in Oregon. Especially in Oregon. Yeah. So, and don't forget, you can find him on social media too at Liska Wines. Yeah, Liska Wine Co. L-I-S-K-A. Yes. Yes, wines. Yeah. So, anyhow, Chris, thank you so very much. I'm thank so you. sorry that Draga couldn't be here with us. But Me too. We told Oliver's story. You told Oliver's story. Yeah, I, she I did has nothing. plenty more story, but I, I gave the, yes. the highlights. Yes, yeah. no, that's great. <laughs> when in doubt, set an appointment for tasting and you can hear more story. You'll just have to ask. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so very much for coming in and bringing wine. And we're going to take a quick uh, wine break, basically, because we've got wine glasses to fill. Pretty sure there's a bathroom break somewhere in between all of this. And then we're going to come back with Colin Wynn with Mendivia and hear his story as well. So stay tuned.
Okay, here we go. We are back. We are full with wine and everybody's happy, happy, happy. So we are back with Colin with Mendivia. And I have to look at the name every time because I want to call it something different. But it's um, beautiful labels, by the way. Thank you, Addy. Yes, yes. And we've had a, quite the conversation during our break, which may or may not make it to the outtakes later on. But so many smart people in this room today. It's been great. So let's talk about you. It's your turn. Yeah. It's your time to shine. Would you like me to start? I want you to start with your story and how this whole wine thing kind of came into your life and about. Yeah. So I might even take a little uh, pattern from Chris there and start with what the brand is and kind of how it started. And then it kind of ties together a little bit. So Mendivia is a Spanish grape focused brand that I'm working on. So it's mostly Tempranillos we have today here, a little Albarino and over the next few years, hopefully bring a few more in, but it's very focused on exploring those grapes in kind of emerging AVAs, mostly around the state, a little bit of Washington if it works out and things like that. So for me, wine kind of started in my home state and then traveling a little bit, right? So finding it in Maryland of all places, which is where I grew up. But uh, when I was in middle school, my friend Elena Bassignani, her family had a winery in northern Baltimore County called Bassignani. And it was a you know, very classic seller. Bert, who's the father there, he, his family went back to Italy. He studied all these methods there. So aside from being in Maryland, everything was very, very old school, you know, like an underground seller. We had our own vineyards. And for, for me, it was just getting started as a summer job. I worked vineyards instead of working like in a mall or something like that. I mean, we did, I mean, my friends just drove the truck around and built fences and planted new vines and just had a blast. Out. I think you said you wore jean shorts. We wore too. jean shorts and sometimes, yeah, <laughs> tank tops and whatever, you know, whatever. Sounds like a very sexy right. type of job. We often had to sunscreen each other's backs and got laughed at by some of the crew, but you don't want to get sunburned, right? So there's a lot of bonding right there. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we had a really good time you know, just immersing ourselves in that. We weren't thinking about winemaking at the time, but it does speak to the, you know, intrinsic pull of of winemaking and wine growing that my other friend who we worked with is also a winemaker in California. So we both started there in high school and college, and he works in California as well. So we both kind of took the same path to winemaking from that starting spot. So I spent years there doing a couple harvests out east and then you know, left one to sort of get into different arenas in winemaking. Uh, I was excited about what was happening in Oregon and the West Coast. But also, you know, I was in my early 20s and it was kind of a springboard to explore all kinds of stuff. So was Oregon really on the radar in Maryland? Well, it... it, When you were sunscreen in the vineyard. When I was... (laughs) (laughs) For me, it was a very, you know, mystical place at that time because it wasn't as mainstream as it is now. It it's was kind just of like, cowboy country still. Yeah, it was like this West. little pocket of like, you know, you go into the wine shop. And I was very lucky to have another friend who was working at um, a big wine shop in Baltimore. So as I was learning about wine making and growing, he was bringing wines back from this great shop in Baltimore. And we were kind of learning and studying at the same time. So I would say, oh, you know, blah, 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 something about the way this is fermented or barrels. And then he would say, oh, this you know, new region I've ever heard of in, let's say, Spain or, or you know, Hungary or even a place in France. So you could buy it right away and start to talk about not just what we're tasting, but maybe how it's made. You start to taste techniques in the wine. And we, so we just sort of talk shop as we were 
growing up, but it was all fun. We never really thought like we need to do this so we get better at what we're doing. It's just like one of the things we did on a Friday night sometimes. How old were you at this point? Twenty two or three or something. This like just that. seems like such a strange conversation for a twenty two year old to be talking about yeah. how wine is being fermented in Maine and made in Hungary. You know, yeah. when when most people are like chasing girls and, you know, doing whatever, like partying. Right. We probably weren't as good at that part. So we <laughs> so okay. <laughs> so so what I've learned is alcohol equals better dates. Perhaps, yeah. And we yes. maybe we sort of dated each other for a minute, uh, <laughs> on a friendship level. But yeah, we you know, we learned a lot and he's still a wine buyer on the East Coast. So we all sort of got into it at this time and it stuck with us. But yes, yeah, so for me, the West Coast and especially the Northwest had this very, you know, misty colored, amazing draw to it, partly just because I grew up in like that sort of grunge era, you know, thing. So like all this Seattle and Portland stuff. The Nirvana yeah, yeah, age of things. That, yeah, like yes. the movie Singles was like, oh, that uh, was such a good mind. movie. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I was like, I want to live just oh, like Ethan that. Ethan Hawke. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, of course, Reality Bites and all yeah. that. So all those movies painted this picture for me that that place was just cool, right? So as I started to find something that I liked doing and was like, you know what, I could move for this. This is something I I could invest my time and and it's really opening something up for me because I went to school essentially for environmental sciences and things like that. And it just wasn't like propelling me forward aside from just, you know, I went to school, I did it and I wasn't thinking about it much outside of school. But when I got into wine, now I have something that's really like I could sit there with my friend, I could sit there on my own and open a bottle of wine and just think about it and read books about it. And that would be exciting. So it was enough for me to be like, it's time to move, you know, and came up here without ever even visiting and just drove out and got a job at the Carlton Winemaker Studio and did my first harvest there out here. Met a lot of great people. And then to keep it sort of short, you can always jut in, but, you know, bounced around a bit through different wineries as you do when you're young, you know, year here, year or two there and then got into distilling for a little bit. Uh, so worked at uh, what was called House Spirits then, making aviation gin and and what were the first batches of Westward whiskey. And, you know, some other, we had a lot of small batch stuff, making rum and coffee liqueur and aquavit and vodka and all this stuff, right? So that was really fun too. It was also like right next to my house. So convenient. Yeah, I rode my bike a lot yeah. and that was great. But, you know, I was starting to sort of get interested in, service and things like that too in restaurants and that was sort of the next step was i opened a wine bar called oso right which is the name of the rosé oso rosado so my wife and i holly ran that for a couple of years so that in a hurry opened up my vision of wines from all over the world and to go back a little bit my first introduction to wine as sort of a cultural staple or thread was going to landing in Madrid for the first time when I was like 17, went with like a summer school trip, went to Spain and France and, you know, going, that was my first international trip and landing in, in Madrid. It is so mind blowing and, and eye opening. Yeah. And I just, they just yeah. so happened to like win the cup between let's say Barcelona. I remember, but like that night, the city erupted in this like cars stopping abandoned on the street, sidewalk, whatever, and, and everyone just jumping up and down. And me and my friend went out there to just be like, what? I mean, that sort of got swept. We got lost in this, you know, sea human wave. Yeah, yeah, got pulled blocks away. And we had, you know, we hadn't really been out of Baltimore in 17 years. <laughs> and now we're like, you know, this is before phones or, you know, not before phones, but before Google Maps. So I didn't know where we were. We just had to like try and count the blocks back to where we thought we 
had been and people are handing us beers and all this stuff. Anyway, I'm getting off track, but that was a brilliant first introduction to wine as a thing that is just part of you living your life and being with friends and enjoying food. Because it was just everywhere, every place we went, the plazas, the, the restaurants, even just uh, conversations. Like if you sat down to plan the next day, the, the guides would usually open some wine and talk. And, and I was like, oh my God, you're having alcohol. You know, is this a party? But it was just part of how they... It's part of their culture. Right. It's, it's just part of their every day. Yeah. And we've made it such a, not a taboo thing, but like a, almost like a kind of like a hideaway thing almost, you know, you have to wait till you're 21 and you can't have it and you can't do this, What, which makes you want it that much more. Yeah. That's why college is so fun. But over there, it's just part of daily life. Yeah. And, and just then, part of the food and cuisine. Yeah. Once you see people enjoying it, but not treating it um, as a, you know, like a secret, like you're saying, a taboo, it just take it all drops away and you're like, well, what, what are, then you started to wonder, well, how do they see it? And that relationship to food become so important or the experience, you know, and then, you know, for me, my, you know, first motivation with the wine is to make wine sort of to the occasion. You know, here we've got a rosé, you know, rosé to me should always be fun. That's the first thing you have to do with rosé, I think, is make it fun. I don't know why rosé even exists without it being something that makes the mood a little bit brighter. So for me, it's, I want it to be friendly. I want it to be pretty. It's pretty. I think and it's delicious. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's a fun wine. And Tempranillo has such a unique flavor for rosé, that sort of watermelony thing that we we're just talking about. Yeah. Versus some of the other rosés. So yeah, it's fun for me to make. And and that idea that, you know, it's just supposed to be a little bit of joy in a bottle. And as you lean into it, hopefully you get more nuances, but it should first just, you know. When I took the, the first bit. drink, I'm like, whoa. I think I looked at you. I'm like, whoa! This is the, almost like lemonade. Like to come off the Syrah specifically, which is a little bit richer, a little bit whatever. It was like, wow! This is like summer in a cup. Yeah, and it's pretty, and it's pink, and it has that nice acid with it as well that we talk so much about with Chris. And it's so important. And like you said, you can pair it with anything. Mm-hmm. Like rosé, technically, and really should be a year-round wine because you can do it with summer to where it's lemony and fresh and summery. But this is great with like turkey and vegetables and cranberry or whatever it is that that you're going to do during the during the winter months as well. So, yeah, and Chris mentioned earlier acidity being so important to his winemaking, and I think you see that more and more with winemakers. Maybe young, wine, I don't know if the age is important, but winemakers that are wanting to not just express the vineyard but make the wine food friendly is that acidity not only cuts through things like the fattiness or the richness or starchiness of a food, but it does lift the fruit or fruit characters, not not necessarily just fruitiness like berries, but whatever the fruit brought to it, it sort of gives it a stage and it gives it vitality and it makes it lively. And of course, it's the right amount of acidity and get a little low or high and it can kind of make it tougher to get that expression. But you know, the vineyard is kind of where it's all happening. I mean, you can't make great wine from an okay vineyard. It just... I don't think so. It's tough. But the vineyard to me is sort of the chef, right? And then the winemakers kind of, uh, for this analogy, maybe like the general manager. You poke in at different times and nudge it this way or that way. But without that initial inspiration and, and sort of set of intrinsic points of flavor and, and sort of, let's say, just like intelligence in the vineyard that the soil and the vines bring and also the grower, you don't have 
anything to shape, you know? So it's got to start there. Yeah. I hear it all the time. Yeah. Great wine starts in the vineyard. Right. Period. So I want to circle back really quick to your trip to Madrid and your focus on more like Spanish, like varietals. Mm -hmm. Was that kind of the inspiration or is it something different that kind of pushed you that direction? Yes, it's part of it. So I should mention too that Mendivia, the name comes from my father's side, of the Spanish side of my family, which is from the Basque region. So as far as I know, there's still family members technically living in Bilbao. I think my uncle tried to go back a long time ago and they were just like, I don't know you. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> it didn't really go over that well, but it's a true story. And so that's the name. So, you know, I think there's a bloodline there, which I'm very fortunate to celebrate, but maybe by luck, just ending up in Spain of all the first trips to take gave me an affection for that country and the way they make wine and, and the way they live and things like that in history as well, especially certain history of certain wine regions, uh, like in the north. Partly because that's where wine survived in Spain, if you consider like the Moorish rule, you know, so like half of Spain, it was illegal to make wine and whatever the centuries that was, let's say 13, 14. But you should have your facts straight before you come on the podcast. (laughs) That, yeah, like, so that Asturias region, that northern part, that was where like there was a cultural stronghold, but also wine continued to survive where in other parts of the country it couldn't, you know. So there's a bit of an like an underdog thing about Spanish wine and just the entire culture that I I find intriguing. But also, I do like to drink the wine. And, you know, I'm I'm already working with Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and Pinot Gris, all these other grapes. I'm associate winemaker Groshaw or GC wines as well. So we have all those wines available. And I, I think there's a bit of a a desire to explore grapes that are interesting to me that aren't in the mainstream as much yet, especially because they come from regions that maybe haven't emerged as much as the Willamette Valley. So to grow the grapes along with those areas is just fun. It gives it running room. It kind of fills a space in the market that, because there's a lot of Pinot and there is a lot of Chardonnay mm-hmm. and Pinot Gris and some of the other things. So this has kind of its own little like chapter in kind of a big book, so yeah. to speak. And I wouldn't do it if I didn't love the wines, but you know, maybe it's just good luck that it's it's one of those grapes that I really like, but it's also, you know, it's like a whisper in the bag. Like people are getting excited about Tempranillo and, and not just Tempranillo, you know, it's sort of like Gamay maybe five years ago, but it's starting to get like a little drumbeat around it. And it, I love that. I'm glad that people, you know, wine festivals or whatever come up and they're like, oh, Tempranillo. I've had one and I really think it's interesting, you know, stories like that. So, yeah. Yeah. You hear it more and more and it's fun to say. I mean, just in, too. yes. In in general, Tempranillo is just fun to say. And so is Alperino. It kind of has that, you right. know. Or Tempranillo from the Midwest. I Tem- think. Tempranillo. It's yeah. like I've been working with somebody from the East Coast and it's Oregon. Right, right. And I'm like, okay, we need to work on that because that's <laughs> just not the way this is working. Right. Yes. Not the way it's pronounced. Right. But yes, it's, um, yeah, everybody pronounces it a little bit different. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. So with Albarino, you're seeing it more and more and more. It's still kind of, again, one of those white wines is kind of emerging. It's on the back burner. People kind of maybe know it exists. Why white wine? We were talking about this at the break. Why white wine? It was always to me, that's what the immature people drank that didn't know wine. And so they just drifted to white because it was easy and it was fruity and it just was flabby, you know, in somebody's mind, maybe. For me, it was sweet and easy to drink. And so if I was needing a quick buzz, a 
great bottle of Mueller was fantastic for the job. Right. But there's so much seriousness around white wine. And it's not just for the, mm. the you know, novice connoisseur. Yeah. So we were just saying that white wine, perhaps, is an official measurement that we as a group were discussing, but might have a wider variety of flavors. Like if you put a, a you know, flavor circle out there or whatever, that white wine would cover a wider variety of flavors between all the varieties in the world versus all the red grapes. doesn't mean it's better. It just means that as you explore white wine, you might run into a flavor that you you don't get. It's completely singular almost to that grape. And then this one over here is so much different in its texture, its um, you know aromas and, and things like that. Now, I don't know exactly why that is, but we were saying also that you know maybe you see winemakers when they sit down, they grab a white wine first before a red wine uh, just to enjoy. And also I think that there's something, the white wines, um, because they're generally not skin contact grapes, they're a little more exposed or, or they don't have things to sort of tuck behind. It's a little more open and I don't know, it's... There usually isn't a lot of like manipulation like with oak and things like that either. So I, it seems like you're getting a more true expression of what the grape is yeah. versus like, not that there's anything wrong with oak and the way other wines, red wines specifically are made, but it doesn't feel like there's as much of that in the white wine sector. Right, right. Yeah, and I, I mean, you'll see more white wines, you know, fermented in oak or concrete or things like that to not get in the way of that expression. And I think, you know, you bring up Albarino, and I think that to me is one of those grapes that has a very unique flavor. Like when Albarino is done well, or you get a good Spanish Albarino, it has this very almost unimitable flavor of like this, you know, melon and oiliness and some pepper and things like that, that only really occurs in that way in great Albarino. And of course you can say this for a lot of red wines too, but it's so distinctive and it goes so well with those foods from that Galician area of Spain, which is why I think people bring that, if you travel there, you come back with this idea, like I love Albert, whatever it was, you know, I love that grape. And then you start to discover it. And when I had the wine bar, also we poured, I almost had Albert on the list all the time because you could pair it with almost every single meal because it had like just enough acid to go with maybe like cheese and salad and things like that, but then down to richer meats and things like that. It has just enough weight, richness and acid to, you know, which is maybe like that area of Spain, it's Pincho's country and you're eating all kinds of different stuff and wine tends to follow the food or vice versa. And yeah, a lot of so olives, well a lot of almonds, a lot of like prosciuttos, cheeses, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Okay. I love it when winemakers talk about adjectives to wine and you just said oiliness. I've not heard that one. I've heard tennis <laughs> balls and I've heard rubber hoses <laughs> and I've heard like brand new tennis balls. Like when right. you open the can, you know, and you get that burst. And I think that's more maybe more of a Sauv Blanc type yeah. thing. But oiliness is not one that I have heard of, especially connected with an Albarino. Yeah, well, I wish we had one here. I think it's like a question of viscosity and whatever phenolics you're getting. So, you know, the wine has a richness to it. And then texture-wise, there might be a richness to the wine, right? That makes sense, like sort of more heaviness to it. But like the flavors that are coming from the phenolics might be savory as well, which sort of supports that sort of more dense, not just melony flavor where it has like texture, but flavors that go to this kind of heavier weight to the wine. Does that make sense? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I mean, it's just... It's hard without the wine here. I'm just sort of it, saying a lot it of descriptive is. words. It's just, you know, yeah. you 
you hear certain things, you know, have green pepper or they're black pepper I'm doing or they're this or whatever. So I, know, I know. You kind of got the whole Italian like, you know, yeah. like thing going on. Yeah. Then, yes. But it's okay. She's not even taking right. video right now. So we can't even like yeah. share it later. Chris, can you confirm that oiliness is a word in white wine? It certainly <laughs> Yes. Uh, oiliness is a real word that people use in white wine. <laughs> I tend to use it a lot with like Viognier. Or like Gewürztraminer, like sometimes when things get a little ripe, you know, they kind of get this oiliness to them. So it's not like you're getting like droplets of oil to the top of your wine. It's just, it's more of like a, it's just a characteristic. It's a sensation similar yeah. to maybe like a coating feeling, but okay. also like that the flavors supporting it are similar to like a grassiness or a, you know, a, a, a darkerness. So that you might, like if you took a spoonful of olive oil, maybe. So Yeah. yeah. So I just I, recommend that. Start with a spoonful of olive so oil. So I we did learn in October that a spoonful of olive oil, if it's real olive oil, should like almost like burn and give you a little bit of a cough in the uh, back yeah. of your throat. It should be throat. kind of uncomfortable. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yes. It yeah. was very interesting and, and another learning experience for us. So drinking olive oil basically straight from the, is an olive grove? Olive orchard? Press. Olive tree. Olive tree? Yes. Sure. Yes. Right. Yes. Yes. Acreage full of olive trees. Yes. So what other adjectives should we know about that is uniquely different with wine? Well, I love um, winemakers and I, the way I, they describe stuff. I think one that I like is the minerality thing, you know, so we're talking about white wine. It's one of my favorite aspects of white wine. And maybe it's a little bit in the rosé, that kind of crackly mineral character. I'm kind of going to bag myself in another corner here, but. You're the, doing really well a, fighting your way back a, out. Yeah, there's there's a sensation you get sometimes with the right wines where like uh, a classic one would be like Muscadet, which is the Malona Borgon grape. And if you get it from the right producer in the right area, you get this nice little kind of lively acidity that almost has this like maybe like a sea salt crystal kind of energy to it. Yeah. I Okay. And I'm not saying that because you just said that, but like when... I took the first drink of this. Mm -hmm. It almost felt like it had almost like a, not a fizz, but almost like a hair of an effervescence to it. And mm -hmm. maybe that's kind of what that was. And I just think that I'm just crazy and that I'm just making things up. But maybe that was it. Right. I, I mean, it kind of, it feels like it's moving. I mean, it is still, but I know what you mean where the, there's a movement to the acid cross, especially in the second half where it sort of feels like it's got a little electricity to it. Yeah. That's one of the descriptors I like for that kind of minerality. I think winemakers, you know, use that a lot and, and kind of know what they're talking about where it's not just acidity. It's that little kind of lively acidity. So you sort of separate the two ideas where it has a little bit of energy to it. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of. Okay. Kind of like yeah. a saltiness sometimes. Yeah. You, you can taste like, especially with, I see it a lot of times with like the white wines that are like in the coastal range. You'll taste the oyster, taste the mm -hmm. the ocean to an extent. And, yeah. and I'm not good at picking that stuff out, but when I taste something, I'm like, oh my goodness, that that's an oyster. Like that, right. that briny sea salt that's, you know, kind of with a raw oyster. It's amazing. Yeah. And so. I think Riesling is another great inland example of that. When you get great Rieslings, the acidity is so like energetic in the finish. And I think the vineyards, of course, you know more about that, Chris. I do think that the soil, uh, along with other factors, does help bring in nuances to the wine that add to that texture. Those little bits that change the way the wine appears in your mouth. So, I like that. So the moral of the story is do not avoid white wine. 
Drink yeah. it, enjoy it, yeah. love yeah. it. Yeah. And if you don't We're like biased, it, but yes, yes. Bias. Yeah. yeah, no, it's, I just don't think it really gets enough press and enough love, I guess. And I just see it more and more with winemakers, mostly in the Northwest and Oregon and the Willamette Valley, but you're seeing so much more seriousness on the white wine varietals. And f- especially for someone like me who loves that acid and the white wine it's exciting. Mm-hmm. The rosés, which I think in the past have been given a bad name for being uber sweet and mm-hmm. they're a little bit syrupy and stuff. You're getting these great flavors, these great textures because you don't see a Tempranillo, rosé of Tempranillo very often. Mm-hmm. And so to see that is exciting. And it, and the Pinot Noir for that matter too. So I'm not distant on that by any means, but there's a lot more that goes into white wine than I think people actually give it credit for. Yes, and I think for white wine, but also all wines, I'm getting more and more interested in sort of the fermentation and aging vessels too. So that really changes, kind of, for lack of a better word, sort of the shape of the wine comes out in the end, barrel fermentation versus, let's say, concrete or even stainless. Like, let's say those three are kind of what you run into the most. The way the temperatures regulate, the amount of oxygen uptake the flavor does or doesn't pick up from those different vessels is really fascinating and the ability to blend those if you can into a final wine is a lot of fun and it gives you these cool different shades of the vineyard or different vineyards and then when you get a wine you're able to build interesting complexities into it uh, into different parts of the palate so yeah it's a blast yeah i love it what have i missed with your wines that we need to cover before i send people your way to come buy what you're making well let's see i mean the wines are mostly being sourced from the Columbia Gorge or Valley. We have a red Tempranillo that's being over vintage that's coming from the Rogue Valley as well. And it's a really great biodynamic vineyard called Upper Five. I'm really excited about that one. It looks like we're about to taste the red uh, from Three Mile. And that's younger, fruitier, and I think what I would call like more of a, a boss style so that, you know, their Tempranillos are made more of a younger style. That The other one will in my mind, anyway, hopefully go more towards the Rioja style, right? So that, you know, a little darker, a little more barrel texture, a little more leathery characters, a little more savory qualities to it. So, and then there'll be a few more white wines next year as well. But yeah, really trying to focus on that. I think that's been the challenge too, is focusing the brand, focusing the message, because it's really easy to get excited about, oh, you know, I could get, I could start doing Gamay or Sauvignon Blanc or something like that, which all seem really fun. But I like the singularity of what we're working on right now and just keeping it there. So I think it sets you apart. It's unique. Yeah. 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 It's easy to remember. Yes. Absolutely. Okay. So where does everybody find you? All right. MendiviaWines.com, of course. And we will deliver in Portland. I think uh, my wife, Holly, will drop wine off at your house. Uh, you if, probably ought to confirm that with Holly before you, you offer that up. She's doing it today, I promise. <laughs> um, but I think it's like a minimum of, I'll just say six bottles. It might be less than that. But um, yeah, if it's reasonable drive in Portland, we're happy to bring it over. And then I know for sure that we're at Taberly Wines. We're doing a release party on August 25th at Taberly in Portland for the Tempranillo, for this uh, three-mile Tempranillo. And then uh, I know it's at Skywater. Neil's been a great supporter there. But we are distributed by PDX Wine in Portland, great distributor. And they are working to you know get restaurant placements and different shops. And so I don't always know every place that it's at. I know that it recently got, went, some went to Flying Fish. So 
I'll just plug them as well. It's a great restaurant. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And, and then when both, in doubt, go to the website. That too. The website's got, when we know where it is, we try to put it on there, but um, we also, it's easy just to buy there and, and check it out. So, but yeah, we're in our first year, so I'm still figuring out <laughs> how it's going and who it's drinking or who is drinking it. Right. So yeah. yeah. And how it's drinking and how it's drinking. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Which is good. So far, so good. Good. Yes. Love it. Well, thank you both. Thank so you. very, very, very much. We are super appreciative of everything and everybody that supports us. So don't forget to go out, subscribe, share with your friends, leave a review. The review is very important as always, because that's how we grow and get shared around the world, which we are listened to, which is super cool. Huge shout out as always to Daniel, my audio engineer savant over there (laughs) with South of Autumn Productions, Uh, Shay, who has been my associate everything. And my chef bagged out this week. He went and did something fun instead. So I guess I'm cooking for you guys instead. So, (laughs) so sorry, but we're having charcuterie today with uh, wine, which is great. It's just great. Anyhow, everybody go out, buy wine, drink wine, enjoy wine. And don't forget the white wine is pretty kick-ass. So don't avoid the white wine. So peace out and cheers, everybody. 